We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. You just like read a biography. Uh, I think I think those tend to be much better at like understanding the philosophy of a dictator or an authoritarian, because you know you got to get into the psyche, right? Because it's not just like you can read abstractions and reviews here and like judgments, but if you understand the psyche, you can easily more pick it up in terms of how it appears in other parts of of the world. So China can only get access to certain types of of Nvidia products. So if the government is already stepping in, being like these things are incredibly valuable, and they create things that uh, could be of threats to national security. That's like kind of next level in terms of innovation that we don't fully understand is going to flush out, right? And these chips are so powerful and it's such a, like a jump beyond CPUs that just nobody really paid attention to uh, that the applications I think are going to be much more creative. Uh, I mean, certainly that's where like NVIDIA is going with this is they want GPUs using healthcare and real estate, and finance and construction. They want to spread their wings and go way beyond AI. Today, Aaron Ginn joins me on Upstream. Aaron is an entrepreneur and technologist whose experience has bridged tech, business, and politics. He believes that tech has woken up to its ability to change society. In this conversation ahead, I talk to Aaron about intellectual diversity in tech, how the GPU revolution is a seismic change to infrastructure, and how it impacts foreign policy. Here's Aaron. Aaron, welcome to Upstream. Thanks for joining the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me, Eric. Aaron, we're here to talk about GPUs. We're here to talk about China. Why don't we first give a little bit of an introduction? Your your career spans both politics and tech and business. Why don't you give a little bit of background on when you look back at your career, what are the threads that you've kept pulling that have led you to start Hydra? Then let's get into Hydra. Yeah. So I would say that like I have a much more of an eclectic background than the average uh, tech entrepreneur. You know, so my my scope of my network expands, you know, uh, both San Francisco and Washington, D.C. And I've always been uh, interested in technology from from the perspective of like building companies is like public art to me. Uh, It's like an expression of an idea of what the future can look like. And obviously that intersects uh, politics because politics fundamentally in Greek just means the way something should be, the way it should live, right? And, and And I think that for a while when I first was like working in tech, there was a little bit of, uh, which I know you know about, like a little naivete about like how politics actually intersects with technology, uh, as if it like was completely unrelated and that the San Francisco people didn't need politicians, didn't need to, you know, be concerned about first principles or core ideas about like governance. Uh, and I think post Obama, obviously they started changing as the intersection into actual how society works, you know, beyond just like, Hey, we sent emails and you can Google stuff. Uh, into, you know, systems that were actually alternatives to what the government already regulated began to sort of break down those walls. And so we, I was already kind of really ahead of that, uh, cause it's all sort of the, where this naturally was going as technology was expanding so rapidly that eventually we're going to be start touching into more and more areas that are deemed, you know, as, uh, untouchables in terms of the political space, right? 
And I was already crossing kind of both of those things just due to like personal interests. Uh, and most notably, I was, you know, Outfront Technology working in the Mironi campaign, but, you know, I've also been involved in a number of other uh, governor races, Senate races, House races, other pre- presidentials. And it's just kind of a, a an unfortunate interest. Uh, you know, I think maybe five years ago, eight years ago, VCs would be like, no, you should be more interested in making money. Now, I think that there's a lot, there's, as you know, like a huge split within sort of the VC community. Uh, that there's those that are believe that their venture is oriented towards uh, societal change and those who don't. And, and so now I get less of that because like, you know, they're, they're looking to actually fund companies that are aligned to certain metaphysical directions that they view creates higher returns. Right. Uh, and that actually the metaphysical concerns that go into the purpose of the business, what the founders believe, do, act, behave, uh, form into uh, whether or not it's going to reach that actual impact that the that the venture investor wants, uh, and I think now actually there's been when I first started in tech like 12 years ago, I would say it was much more libertarian, amoral. I think pretty naive about politics and how morality faces and ethics faces into uh, technology. Now I actually think it's actually very high on the list, uh, both in the sense of things I agree with and disagree with. Uh, that actually what you do and then what you build is much more related to the end outcome you're trying to achieve as a company, whether that's actually whether or not something like someone actually wants to invest in or not invest in. Uh, so I decided to take the route of you know already kind of intersecting with that like 12 years ago, and you know actually worked on the campaign, actually you know involved with like committee stuff, DC stuff, local stuff within California and in Colorado and a bunch of other states. And I, on the technology side, like you know, I was working everything from social media to ecom. Uh, to I started other businesses that were not venture backed, and the most recent company uh, Hydra was focused on uh, this area of distributed uh, agnostic computing. And at first, we were focusing on uh, how this actually was going to uh, be achieved from a virtualization perspective, from a cloud perspective. And then we we drifted down into deeper into the stack, finding other areas that needed to be innovated upon that were not uh, virtualization. Which is generally like low margin, very high fixed costs to try to get the the low cost within the virtualization model. We decided to go the direction of of uh, bare metal, particularly around GPUs, and that that was obviously the machines are much more expensive. Uh, there's a scarcity, and people don't really need as much virtualization as they do within the CPU world. And there's a whole other world sort of growing within that space that needed the ability to be uh, agnostic, and and also to be able to access different types of resources around the world. So that's what led us to building the software we did, which is which is kind of a combination of VMware plus like Shopify. Uh, you know, when I was running a helping run a fashion brand, I didn't ever thought I would actually be building alternative VMware. Uh, but like VMware from a provisioning management of metal perspective, and actually running everything from networking, security, uh, user access, things like that, uh, to actually manage an actual physical box in a location. And on the front end side, we we built a like a single turnkey solution to sell that GPU, whether it is on a private basis or on a public market basis, uh, and be able to set pricing, scheduling, access, revoking access, payments, billing, invoicing, kind of put all that together to where it's uh, one cohesive unit. I, I want us to go through the the idea maze on a, on a couple fronts. So one, I, w- I want to ask about Hydra uh, idea maze and how you sort of thought about that as like 
you know where the highest leverage is and how you should spend your time. But first, actually, I'm curious on the the moral idea maze that you mentioned, where you sort of transitioned, you know, from sort of the libertarian, you know, views and aesthetic to to something uh, a, a bit a bit more right. Um, what, why don't you because it, talk about that journey because it's a journey that a lot of people make. There was something that happened in the '90s that sort of thought that like if we just teach these kids to make money, everything will just work out, right? And that was like the training in high school, training in college was like secularism is a uh, is this sort of detente and an armistice or something that we just are amoralists and everything will be great, uh, which obviously was a red herring because it's not true that the idea of secularism is based on morality, is based on things about like within ethics that is not the lack of it actually is an argument from ethics and morals that you can be secular, right? So it's not an absence, it's actually inclusion of statements about what life is, like, you know, objective statements about people and how you should treat people uh, that creates the ability to be secular. And and that obviously fails, like the, the whole experiment failed. Uh, the, the great expression of that is wokeism, that like something filled the void, right? And And instead of like framing it from like, here are the presuppositions that require uh, sort of secular transactions that creates the market mechanism. We just sort of removed the upper story and just only took the lower story. And then that created a sweeping in of another higher story, right? That actually is eroding the lower story to use a sort of Thomas Sowell framework. Uh, and and I, I think that that's one of the transitions that like I saw whenever uh, the, so the book that like changed my perspective on politics was when I was 17. Uh, and I was being a Christian when I was 17. Uh, was The Terrible Truth About Liberals, written by a libertarian. And it actually was not a very libertarian book, uh, but what it actually argued was like how people talk. It was, it was about being a polemic, right? So how do you actually present arguments, how people talk about politics? And and that was actually really eye-opening to me uh, about like what actually is being discussed and what's not being discussed. Uh, and and as you know, as a, you know, Girardian expert, like, like that's also a, a, a very good investing philosophy, right? There are these that fundamentally we're doing is we're building like a company, an enterprise to create social change, right? And that social change uh, is is both in the function of like things that I would agree with, right? Which is like providing value, uh, either reducing costs or innovating, but but also people take that money and do something completely non-productive with it, right? And do social change that way, right? But fundamentally you're creating these vehicles of value creation and value transaction. Uh, and I think that, in say web 2.0 maybe or web 3.0 I, mean, I don't know like there was kind of a in a, a a moralist perspective about technology and and that then filled itself with i think very moral filled and i use that from a not from a subjective but a, an objective meaning that like they do themselves moral obviously disagree with a lot of things they're doing and that's what created that because it filled it with this sort of um you know like a i would call it a like a atheistic uh puritanical rage uh, and created a, a conflict point with the rest of, of society in, in the globe. But if we would have just created an upper story that that had the values to continue to support um, free markets and human flourishing, I don't think that would have ever happened. I, I, I don't really believe that that angle of entrepreneurship or businesses, like I don't really think anyone it's valid anymore. Uh, but that was like, you know, if you were an 80s baby or 90s baby, that was what you were taught in high school and in college. Now it's not, but but that, I think that that was the the biases that went into um, the technology community 
that uh, that you know has now had a, a massive split in it between you know sort of two diametrically opposed worldviews. When you think about the worldview that is not wokeness, do you think for you is that more traditional religion, or is that is it you know looking towards the past, or is it something else? Because I think that's a broad question: is like, do we go back to what what we we knew, but is perhaps discredited by some, or do we go towards something new? But if so, you know, what what is that thing? Yeah, I I mean, I'm I'm a, a big believer in C.S. Lewis's chronological snobbery. So you know, the Ten Commandments are pretty dope. Uh, you know, <laughs> and and you know, reinventing the wheel is you know not necessarily something that I'm interested in. Uh, but I, I do think that the application of those values obviously have some sort of subjective, you know, relevance to it, right? Some judgment that's applied to it uh, on how we sort of go forward next, right? But uh, I firmly believe in uh, innovation and I firmly believe in progress in the human experiment and sort of how like faith fits within that. I mean, you mean more specifically morality. Um, I do believe that what was presented in a lot of the founding father stuff, which was radically innovative at the time, is still the relevant code that we should follow today, uh, because it has worked. Obviously, you know, like like in we are we are the dominant force in the world. We still are, and we still like you know we have competition, but you know we still are number one. And it's it's been the only country in in human existence, right, in all of human history, to create a multi ethnic experiment, multi regional, multi ethnic experiment, right? That has been pretty successful. There are lots of other countries that have tried this that absolutely failed, right? And, and as in modern experiments, I mean, if you look at it historically, it just was never really true in terms of like human and human civilization to have something like America. Uh, and so I believe that those work and we should just continue to reinforce those. There may be like a refreshing about how we land the plane. And, and I think that's where you see like these people, both good and bad. I'm not endorsing these people, but like Jordan Peterson, Rogan, you know, Tate, uh, different voices on Twitter that are very, very popular, like Walsh and uh, Jeremy and and uh, uh, kind of like the newer age versions of like the end cultures of the world. Uh, and I think that's how we sort of continue to to continue the foundational principles, the first principles, but then apply the refresh element. There are new things I think that we should actually incorporate. I think a lot of the elements around uh, Gerard, as a big fan of Gerard, should be taught in school uh, to teach people that like, victimization and the the cancer that is victimization is only cured with like scapegoat theory and mimetic theory right showing that actually this is a product of control and and power it is not actually true right and and scapegoating and understanding how that's the natural desire of all of humanity to do that i think is a cure to a lot of those pathologies not just saying you're not a victim it's actually like understanding the the metaphysical psychological framework that goes into those things that makes people into where they feel like they're helpless. And therefore, uh, uh, you know, it, it's, it's like we're in this upside down world, right? That where the victims are the abusers, right? And almost like real victims are forgotten. And, and I, and I think that that's where you have to show that like the human desire and human heart is drawn to these things. And that's what we have to correct. And there are recent thinkers that are really good at that, obviously Gerard, uh, that can like, that can showcase how, um, there's a different path, right? And the path of that is, is residing in forgiveness and grace, uh, and, and not in a power struggle, right? Around, around an identity category. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. 
If you don't already subscribe to Turpentine's industry-leading newsletters, like our new daily AI newsletter, Emergent Behavior, or Media Empires, you should. But that's not what I'm here to tell you about. The platform we use to power these newsletters is called Beehive, and it's excellent. First of all, it was started by the same early team who helped build Morning Brew into a $75 million newsletter business. And they built Beehive to offer that same powerful functionality to anyone sending emails. From essayists to business owners, the platform is beautiful, their text editor is intuitive, and they help you scale your audience with custom growth features. Beehive has powerful tools to help you monetize your content. You can easily launch paid subscriptions or pursue an advertising model. The Beehive platform will even connect you to premium brands to sponsor your newsletter. Not only do we use them, but thousands of the top newsletters in the world also use them, like Milk Road, Blockworks, The Lindy Newsletter, and so many more. Beehive's founder hooked up Upstream listeners with a sweet deal. Get 20% off for three months with code UPSTREAM. Visit beehive.com, that's B-E-E-H-I-I-V.com, to get started. Totally. And as we see this sort of conflict between two worldviews, do you expect that the the business of this increasing polarization will thus mean there's a, a left-wing X and a right-wing X? And by X, I mean the sort of algebraic, you know, I don't mean Twitter, I mean like, you know, literally everything? Or how, how do you think this will this will happen? Uh, how like, it will flush out? Or like how it will... Yeah, yeah. Like, will we have like a right-wing parallel economy for like everything? No, I don't think so. Uh, because I don't think the other side works. <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't think it actually produces prosperity and healthiness in a civilization. I think it produces destruction. And my family, you know, fled communism and like real communism, right? Not the type that it works at Starbucks and wears a hat, right? Like real communism. And, and so like I, I, my family has seen what it's done, uh, murder, stealing, theft, right? Uh, the abuse of authorities, no human rights. And, and I, and, and I don't believe that that is a, a sustainable solution to anything. Um, so I, I was want to bet on the good values and good principles because that's the only one win. And, and I, I just want companies to behave too. Like I, and I think that that's where there is some legitimacy to, I think the alternative economy when it comes to, I think maybe non moat oriented companies, um, like brands and things like that. I think it's totally fine. Like bulletproof coffee, right? I think that's, that's great. Um, but you know, there, there are things that are in the turn of economy that are just like things that you should have, like gun, gun companies, right? Gun companies are in the turn of economy, but it's like, is there, are there left wing gun companies? I don't know. I don't know about, right? So it's, so like, I, I, I think that the, the, the areas that I would agree with it would be, you know, endorsing brands, endorsing companies, uh, cause that's your right to choose as, as, as a, as a consumer. Right. But on, I think the technology side, there's less application around that. Um, because there's, the, those tend to be, you know, more, more parabolic outcomes. And, and, and that's where that, that doesn't necessarily apply. I just want those companies to be more, you know, behave better. Right. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how this all plays out now that there's more intellectual diversity within uh, the tech ecosystem. And, and you were really early to, uh, to figuring out that that will be, that, that will be important. That'll be important to, to have, have a view sort of on what the company is trying to do and that politics will play a role in these companies. You can't, you can't just ignore it. You know, it, it, you may not be interested in politics, but politics is interested in you as the, as the saying goes. Yeah. I mean, they tax you. So they're fundamentally are right. <laughs> Yeah, they tax you. They they regulate you. They determine what you know what what you you should be saying, etc. Let's segue into uh, GPUs. Why don't we talk about Nvidia versus the versus the public cloud? Why don't you uh, you sort of give a bit of an overview there? 
the obviously this is one of the most interesting times relates to like infrastructure. And, you know, there's like a kind of a, a colloquial joke that like investors like you are buying NVIDIA chips in terms of the companies that they're investing in. And, and I, I think that that's someone's true and someone not because it's true that like this is the biggest infrastructure change we see in 15 years, right? Uh, and, and it's, it's actually touching at something that is, will affect the entire internet and from devices to laptops to, you know, companies where they host. Um, because I'm a big believer that GPUs is like, Basically, the, the, what we always waited with quantum and GPUs is happening, which is just, you know, simply put like parallels, paralyzing computing, right? And, and that like this wave is going to continue. And it just like that the brand around ChatGPT is what kind of like sparked it, right? Uh, to say, oh, wait, there's another chip out there that we can buy, right? Cause Nvidia has been around for a while, right? There's a chip we can buy that we can use and do different things with, right? So, uh, you know, so the public cloud, right, has built an entire business model on low rent, low cost CPUs, right? And they've, they've invented their own chips, their own CPU chips. They've designed a whole networking system around non-parallelized computing. And they have a whole cost energy model, cooling model that's only designed for CPUs, right? GPUs are like, you know, it's like if a CPU, like, like I was just using car analogy, like a CPU is like a Skoda, right? Let's like use a Volkswagen group example, like a Skoda, right? That's like, that'd be like the nicest CPU you can get, right? The average GPU that you'll just buy from NVIDIA is minimally like an A3 Audi, right? So the, the difference is we're talking about for like a mega data center in Virginia that is only optimized for that thing, right? Uh, and now jumping into supporting Audis is like, like a huge difference. Now you're talking about like DGXs, right? Uh, you're talking about like Lamborghinis and Porsches, right? That you can't put that in a Virginia mega data center. Like, like the energy needed to run an H100 versus like average CPU is like magnitudes difference, right? Sometimes 10 to 30 times greater, right? Then you have the cooling problems, right? And then you like, like, like the fact of like you're dealing with a box that's like half a million dollars versus a box that's like $2,000, which would be like a really nice, you know, like a really nice CPU, right? Public cloud is like not ready for this, right? And then you then add the other layer to it of like the physical area is like public cloud is not ready. And then you get this other area of like the networking side, right? Which is the real value behind a lot of GPUs versus how you actually interconnect them all. How does public cloud sell that? Right. How do they sell that? Like they, 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 they don't sell racks, you know, and then now like add not just racks, but also like the interconnections between those. Right. Uh, and that the reason why they get the cost so low within like, you know, S3 or, or whatever Amazon service you're using, whatever buckets you're using, uh, is because they control the networking. Absolutely. Right. And, and so now you got this other factor coming in now with GPUs coming in, where it's like, what gives the advantage to a lot of the GPUs is you give over networking, right? Where they, where the companies have access to and going to do whatever they want with it within the rack. Uh, and, and so I think those are things that are breaking apart with, between public cloud, where public cloud will be a thing, just like the IBM's a thing, right? But the next wave of like cloud and virtualization and infrastructure is, is basically going to be, I believe, highly modularized, highly regionalized uh, GPU-focused uh, data centers. Uh, like, is it data centers are focused only on cooling, data centers attached to green energy, like nuclear power plants, geothermal, like uh, data centers that have, like, their data centers in the Nordic countries that the towns will pay the heat from the data center into the town, right? So that that is where GPU hosting is going. And public cloud is not ready for that. Like they, they're, they're still focused on their big mega data centers because yeah, when you're dealing with boxes, they're tens of thousands of dollars, right? And you're just going to run them for three to five years on a, like a low energy model, right? And, and they, how do you switch that over to where you're in the running a, a super 
uh, hot, like where you only can have like, and, and, and some data centers in Phoenix, right? They're not optimized for GPUs. Like they're running only two H100 servers in one rack, right? So previously that would be, you know, maybe eight or 12 CPUs, right? Because it's so hot and takes so much energy, right? They can only put two in there, right? So how do you deal with a, with a, as a mega center? Like how do you deal with that, right? Uh, so that, that's why I think it's, it's going to break itself apart where like GPUs and GPU associated hosting is going to go against the virtualization direction, against the public cloud direction. Uh, and also like, uh, there's another area that like is, is, is kind of like the people in the business know about this, but like not many people outside of like, you say, if you're buying GPUs, you don't know about this. NVIDIA doesn't really like the public cloud companies. The only reason why they do partnership with Microsoft is because Microsoft has agreed to not build the chip, but Amazon and Google have all, have all agreed to build the inference chip. So NVIDIA is like, I don't want to sell to this, right? And they also understand what happened to all the other chip makers for the CPU revolution. What happened to them? Nosedive in stock, right? Once an infrastructure company came out, they controlled access to the customer. They just squeezed and squeezed and squeezed them, right? So NVIDIA knows that, right? And so they're, they are not, they're using, since they're the king of the hill in the tech world right now, they can do whatever they want because 80% of all GPUs sold are, you know, are NVIDIA, right? No one cares what anything else is made. Like literally nobody cares, right? So. The only people buying the other GPUs are people who are like, you know, cost conscious and they don't want to spend the money. Everybody wants NVIDIA because it, it still is the best. Like regardless of what AMD says, like there is nothing that can compete with an A100 and H100. Uh, we'll see about L40S and lower grade stuff. Um, but that still is, it is still the Lamborghini on the market. And, and they're just also really fast innovating. Like the AMD came out with a, uh, a cheaper inference chip. Uh, and, and NVIDIA is on fast on stale, basically. You know, because they're so good at making uh, high performance chip for uh, for training, they basically just add more storage to the to the to, to their GPU, and now it's you know it can be competitive on the inference side. Um, so, like the Nvidia wants to create footprint, uh, they don't really want density in like a couple places. So they're trying to spread out as far as possible, get as many data centers to have HGXs, have DGXs, have as many workstations as possible around the world, right? That's their focus, which is a very smart play. Uh, th- like they're, they are not trying to just, you know, they could theoretically just solve all the shortages on one platform, right? And just give it over to them, right? But they know that like they want to control the customer, right? So this is why they're coming up with these, at these SDKs. This is why they're trying to get these relationships with these customers uh, because they saw what happened to the previous uh, chip makers and they do not want to lose access to the customer. Uh, so I think a lot of the shortages that you see on big platforms will continue. And rather, what you're going to see is these data centers are going to start popping up, which is why people use our software. Data centers start popping up, being able to sell H100s at you know below market rates because you know they have a direct relationship with Nvidia, no one knows they're around, and they have you know let's say 32 H100s available, and it's just locked behind some some access ports and you know like uh like because then they don't have an API, they don't have any you know uh, way to securely log in, and and I, I think you're going to see more and more of that. Where these individual like companies um, start selling their own GPUs, uh, then that's also where the public cloud is like not really. These things are so expensive, and you have obviously companies, probably some that you know you invest in, that are buying five to ten million dollar systems, right? So that's very different than buying your own bare metal CPU, you know, maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars, right? And and so they want to resell that, right? And you can you go talk to these companies, they're like, yeah, my friend's using it today, right? Because he doesn't have access to H one hundreds. Like that's also like a new thing too, right? And and uh, it's almost like back to the 2000, 2001 era, right? And and that's also a public cloud is like not capable of like really competing is that a lot of these companies are just going to resell to the market. 
and 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 I don't believe we're overbuilt. I read that a couple times because I think that's a very narrow view about. Uh, plus, the economics are wrong. He doesn't. Uh, it's not a you know most of these public cloud companies are making twenty to third fifteen twenty percent margin uh, on on GPU cells. So that's that's not correct. Um, and uh, but but yeah, like I, I I see this kind of like decentralization appearing with GPUs because they are so expensive. Virtualization is not how you best use a GPU. Public cloud is not optimized based on data center design to support GPUs. The newer data centers are the ones that are more capable of supporting GPUs. Those are typically smaller, more agile. Uh, and NVIDIA does not want to sell to public cloud. They want to sell to all these other ones dispersed all around the world. So they get their footprint and direct access to customers. That, that's well said. It's a great overview. When you share kind of like, what is the biggest question you have in terms of what you think is still uh, unsolved or, or not figured out in terms of, let's say we're having this conversation, you know, a year from now or six months from now in terms of how you think this is all going to play out? I think the service continues um, because no one really knows how to like optimize on these chips. And um, <clears throat> I can tell you, this may give a lot of investors heartburn, but um, there are many times that companies come to me and be like, hey, I want and a a one hundred eighty gig. Those that's by far the most popular chip right now. By the way, H one hundred is not the most popular. A one hundred is the most popular. And they're like, yeah, I want to, I want to a one hundred eighty gig, and like I got to do all this this training and inferencing on it. And I look at it, and I'm like, well, I mean, you do this with like an A forty, right? Like you don't really need to run. It's like, no, but I read from a friend that did this and this on it, right? And and so that's that's going to continue for a long for a while, like. And it, they don't know how to optimize on on these chips, right? So like lower lower grade chips, like you can you can do a lot of work on like a lot of great work like on RTXs, like you can do a lot of great stuff on it. And you just kind of know how to use like a storage server combined with a card, right? And we're seeing more of that, especially on the refurb market. Uh, that's like a whole area of like great value for like I'm, for individual companies. I'm actually not encouraging them to buy new. I'm encouraging them to buy with the refurb because the, it's just like one third off in the last still for another three years. And it's great value. Uh, and, and like, you know, versus like a, an A180 gig HTX right now would be like 180K. You can get like a six month used one for like 125, right? So, uh, and, and that will run for another three years. Like, you know, NVIDIA can clean and pull it and, and give you another like warranty on it. So, so yeah, I think that like how all of the supply kind of like works together in this like, uh, orchestration. And I, I think that the kind of like negative, view on GPU, which is unknown, is like whether or not there'd be another use case. Um, I like will it expand outside of, you know, AI, right? And and these chips are so powerful and it's such a like a jump beyond CPUs that would just nobody really paid attention to, uh, because it's in gaming and stuff. Uh that the applications I think are going to be much more creative as the refurb market and other chips come online and Pricing continues to pull down. And I mean, GPUs are always going to be more expensive than CPUs, but like, be, but as it gets pushed down, I, I do believe you're going to see more people just adopt it, and they'll see how powerful it is, and we'll start using it for more uh, different reasons. Uh, I mean, certainly that's where like Nvidia is going with this. Is they want you know GPUs using healthcare and real estate, and finance and construction, right? They want to they want to spread their wings and go way beyond AI, uh, which I which is intel- which is smart. That's also why that Sequoia post went viral is not viewing this properly like you know there's there's a ton of companies buying gpus that are not in that business uh and they're in other businesses that require virtualization like you know one of our you know companies that use our software they use it to make you know weapons 
So like, you know, that wasn't factored in that, you know, what's left in the being overbuilt, right? Like he, it, it's a, there are different things being done with it. And I do think that will continue uh, to grow, but, but that's like the biggest open question of like, when, when a company becomes really hot, that use GPUs to do something other than AI, then another wave will happen. And I don't know what that wave is going to be. Uh, and so, it, so it's highly like brand and press uh, dependent, uh, but somebody is, somebody's going to like describe their infrastructure and, and, you know, and then the people associate their infrastructure with product success. Uh, and you also know how that happened is that's what Netflix did, right? So uh, the famous story around Netflix is in Amazon is that, you know, the reason why AWS can be successful is like basically supply Netflix with all their infrastructure, right? And, and so like, that's something I guess can happen again. That's not AI that uses GPUs. And that's what we don't know. Uh, and, and the resale market, the second one would be the resale market around refurb, uh, will be, I think, change a lot of people's perspective about GPUs because if you're looking at something that's half or a third of the price and it's still a great box for another three years, like, uh, even, or even longer. If you just use it for bursting into training or something like that, then like, you know, it, it's a, it's a very different value proposition than like, you know, when Tesla bought, I don't know how many bought, like 4,000 H100s, right? It's very different than, than, you know, than that, than that sort of thought. I, th- I think, I think investors only see that. They don't see how the rest of this market is developing as the price comes down. As you know, it's classic innovation, right? They're like, uh, the first car to ever receive, I'm a big Audi fan, which is why I use the Volkswagen group example. The, you know, the first car to receive those cool headlights, right? Like Audi's known for its headlights was the R8. That was the first car to receive really cool headlights. And, and, and they built a whole brand around that, right? And then now it's in the A3, right? And it took a decade. So we're going to see that innovation spread and only focusing on what, you know, training and inferencing is doing. I think is very narrowly focused on what actually is happening within the video and actually how it, I, you have to get them props, like how they know they're the king on the hill and they're trying to enforce a strategy to make them to where they're a permanent fixture within big tech, big tech isn't like, you know, unicorn tech. Uh, going forward and just not going to go the way of Intel or IBM or something like that. That's a great overview. I want to segue a bit to uh, to China. And I want you to talk about how this all plays out or h- how you see that, uh, you know, us interfacing. Outside of like, when are we eventually going to have some kinetic inter- interaction with them? Yeah, it's like kind of destiny at this point. One is that was also the first time uh, not factored into that only reason why I reference that Sequoia analysis because like it went viral. Like, like I think also that's something not factored into the analysis is that GPUs are considered probably one of the first times like a national security concern, right? Where they're banning the sale of certain GPUs to countries, right? So like, think about that. Like, this is like fighter jet level like controls that they're applying to to things, right? So so China can only get access to certain types of, of NVIDIA products. And, uh, you know, they are hoarding still, like they're finding ways black market refurb to like buy and hoard. Um, because everything they have access to sucks. So like they're, they're trying to get ahead of this and, uh, of like all these embargoes and blockades. But that's also something we have to think about with like how if, if, if there is, and I, I don't think, you know, for all of my belief that politics is like the, the show Veep, like there are things that happen incentive wise that are aligned with what people think the future is going to be. So if the government is already stepping in being like, these things are incredibly valuable and they create things that are, uh, could be a, a threats to national security. That's like kind of next level in terms of innovation that we don't fully understand this is going to flush out. Right. And my guess is that, you know, somebody in DC 
like was talking to some senators about probably you know probably came from the senate like I don't, I don't fully know how a lot of these EOs flushed out, but like this would, sounds like something that would happen in the Senate, you know, about like how GPUs could be used to make a AI model that attacks the stock market continually, like a, basically a more advanced DDoS. And, and so, you know, we have to prevent the access to that, which, you know, is, is actually pretty probable, right? I mean, we've heard about, you know, Shamoth is kind of a little bit of doomsday on GPUs and like in terms of like being used as hostile things against us, right? And, and it's, you know, I don't want someone to do that, but I can definitely see someone doing that, right? Uh, I don't know how successful it would be, but, you know, if you make an LLM to tell you how to make cookies, like, I guess you can make an LLM to how to break into the NSA, right? I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like, uh, I'm sure it's being tried right now. But like, like you know, the the, the conflict point between us and, and China continues, the asymmetric stuff, which I consider embargoes asymmetric, continues to ret- ratchet up, it continues to increase. And, and that will also continue to impact how GPU sales go in the scarcity that it creates. Um, and, and also just like general competition too. Like they kind of defaulted NVIDIA into regulatory capture as in a permanent fixture of like what is valuable to the West. And, and also goes into their whole chip strategy, right? The one reason why they're shifting protection to like H100 is they want to reduce exposure to other chip makers, the possibility of exposure to the CCP, right? Um, and we're already seeing it in, in our own platform, people requesting non-CCP exposed parts, right? Uh, and that's coming a lot from Sibbers, uh, and which are basically like government innovation product projects. Uh, and so like we're seeing that now happen too, where like previously was, everything's a shortage, doesn't matter where it comes from. Now it's like, oh, wait, like we need to think about this because the real value and what we're creating with the GPU could actually be spyware, right? The, basically the Huawei down, like there's a Huawei example there, right? And I, I personally haven't experienced that. I haven't had someone buy a GPU on our platform and be like, oh my God, there was a CCP agent on it, right? And, and you know, also our software cleans and pulls and it completely erases all that stuff. But like, but you know, you don't know in terms of physical hardware if there's something attached to it, right? Uh, and and I think that's becomes increasing concern as well. Um, but, but China certainly, if you look at the, the scale of capabilities on the asymmetric side and digital side, uh, I mean, they're, I, I would put them either at our level or better than us. Um, so th- this continued issue around GPUs and like who they go to and want, uh, is going to one, hopefully accelerate our ability to defend ourselves and create offensive asymmetric, uh, you know, basically messing with them as they mess with us. Like one of my buddies is a, uh, uh, I have a couple of friends that are Navy SEALs. You know, Navy SEALs just don't swim, right? Or just jump out of helicopters, right? They also do espionage. And, for those that are deployed and towards that in the in, in um, you know China and associated countries, uh, they know and they will tell you how much China is assaulting like our country, right? All asymmetric, something you don't, you don't notice, right? You don't see a plane or anything like that, but I mean it's it's very very hostile to the point where like Russia definitely you know does stuff to us, but they they do, they sort of do it as in like the way I would describe it, it's what they told me would be like uh like your uncle that's kind of like a bit kind of messed up like can me a little kind of a drunk and they kind of like well like like you know kind of like hits you hits you in the shoulder right but he doesn't really like want to like like push you off your throne right uh versus like the the efforts that china does is like massive social destruction like that's what they're seeking to our country right and they don't really think i think beyond that you know their their ability to to look beyond that is i think minimal um but the efforts in terms of conflicts between the two, you could see by what people are doing uh, in terms of these adversaries, like tells you what their motivation is, right? 
and certainly, I mean, Russia's has definitely escalated uh, in terms of you know post Ukraine war in terms of that that uh, proxy war that we're involved in. Uh, but but you know the China thing continues to increase regardless of any other proxy war that we're actually in with them. And the the, the they're like these rules of the road that like Russia still follows, right? Even though in fact we actually haven't followed them in return, by the way. But they still follow these lanes, and basically you know because we have a long history with them. But for China, there's no no lanes. It's just like we're just going to win, right? And 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 they don't like care, right? And uh, in terms of consequences, they just don't want to be kinetic, right? And and GPUs kind of fits into that 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 orientation where we are issuing an asymmetric you know conflict with them around the computing power. And now they're going to try to go find it elsewhere and try to you know scoop these out because th- there's nothing that they can come even close to making uh, to what Nvidia has made. Not, not nothing kind of. I mean, Look at their efforts to build like a fifth generation fighter in a commercial airplane. Like there is no way they're going to be able to recreate what Nvidia has. Uh, and so that, in that sense, like what what the White House did with the with these EOs is saying like it's like Boeing, right? Nvidia is Boeing, right, or something like 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 Nvidia or sorry, like Boeing, right, and Lockheed and Raytheon. Like those aren't companies, right? That I mean they they are, but they're not, right? They're state assets, right? So I can see NVIDIA picking a side, and I mean, it's going to be our side, because this is where they make all their money is in the US anyways, and and saying like, you know, this is what, you know, this is the, this is the country we're going to go to, right? And, and you know, the, you, I've seen the CEO, he's gone to Hong Kong, he's gone to Singapore and did stuff like, he knows who's in charge, right? Like, like the West is in charge, right, of, of the GPU market. Uh, and there's not enough money uh, that, that the CCP could bribe them with. That would that would make it to where it'd be even compelling, and you know the whole obviously Taiwan sort of situation too, where we, we protect Taiwan. So uh, that that's like it, it the, the game theory around like where the GPU market is going, which is why like the the twenty billion missing whole thing I think is is a bit of a, a red herring because it's not seeing actually uh, how all these things are intersecting. This literally is not just like a chip made in Silicon Valley anymore. This is literally um, viewed as a weapon. And it must be controlled. And, and that's where the whole market and how it flushes in the startups and AI and investing and, you know, all these, like we have these H100 companies just all selling just H100s. Uh, it, it makes it for, for a very fascinating, like next two or three years as the competing, competing market entirely shifts over. Uh, I believe it, 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 it will. Uh, and to using, uh, these new times of uh, parallels, paralyzing computing. Because, you know, the governments of the world have said, like, this is the priority. So that's well put. What other foreign policy uh, concerns or predictions or questions uh, come to mind for you as it relates to to GPUs and how things might play out? You know, sometimes what happens, like, uh, with the history of China, um, there's a great book about China called um, Mao. I think it's just called Mao. And it's just like a 900-page biography about Mao, so I've read it. Uh, and I think re- I read it twice actually, and I actually read a biography about Lenin twice too. Those two people will tell you a lot about you know non freedom, non free market thinking. Just like read a biography. Uh, I think I think those tend to be much better at like understanding the philosophy of a dictator or an authoritarian, because you know you got to get into the psyche, right? Because it's not just like you can read abstractions and reviews here and like judgments, but if you understand the psyche, you can easily more pick it up in terms of how it appears in other parts of of, of the world. And the history of like China is that like they don't, they're not very good at like generating out a whole cloth new things, right? They, they're very good at copying and iterating. 
And uh, there, there's a there's a great story. One of our buddies that worked at a German um, uh, manufacturing company, and he lived in Colorado. And uh, he told me a story about the the Shanghai uh, hypertrain to the airport. And he goes, yeah, like we went there and we demo the train, like our train set, like, and, you know, here's our train, costs whatever billion dollars, right? And China didn't pick it. And then the, the CEOs went to the launch of the train and they're like, oh, this looks really familiar, right? Like they look, this looks really familiar, right? Like, like the design, the sh- you know, there's like small cosmetic things that are different, but like the whole train design just looked like what they made, right? And, uh, and I think, you know, is that innovation? Like, no, of course, right? You're just copying something, right? And, and you see these like derivatives of things, like the, the greatest is their new, their new commercial aircraft that is, looks exactly like an A, uh, like an Airbus, uh, 220, right? And it's a different sizing, but like, then it like, looks very, very similar, right? And the engines by far, which is the hardest part of the, of the, of an air, commercial aircraft is still produced by the West. So, you know, it's not getting off the ground unless we, we decide to like continue to allow them my parts, right? Um, so the, they, they're, they're very good at that. And there's other examples of this, like how they got their kitchen fighters, how they got their fortune fighters, how they got the submarines, how they got their first nukes. Like they, these are all examples of like game theory. Uh, the, 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 one of the greatest examples of this is, uh, I love the story that, um, so Stalin, uh, did not like Mao, uh, which is kind of amazing to think about, right? Cause like they're both insanely brutal dictators, but Stalin thought Mao was crazy, which is saying something, right? And, and so during the, you know, the early, uh, like post World War II and the Korea conflict and stuff like that, like Russia viewed it like it had to defend China, right? Because it didn't want the West to be on its border. Um, and so Mao would make up these kind of like, uh, like arguments about like knowing that saying like, oh, you don't want, you know, Russians to come into, you know, to China and to defend China, right? Or for you, right? Because you don't, because he knew that Stalin didn't want China to become like a, a Western ally. He didn't want Korea to become a Western ally. So literally, Mao would pitch him things like, "Oh, just send over your weapons. Like you can station them here. Send over your scientists." Right. So how he got like subs and nukes was essentially like convincing Stalin that, uh, like that. Oh, like you just don't want to send Russian troops to defend Chinese territory, right? And in fact, how he got the, the nuclear weapons, and this is in the Mao book, was that he sent, uh, Mao sent, uh, essentially like, um, alerting angry, you know, messages that he knew Eisenhower was watching and made all these threats, right? And then Eisenhower then says to defend Taiwan, but the nuclear options on the table. Then Mao then goes back to Stalin, says, you need to give us nukes because if they nuke us, you're going to have to come in and defend Chinese territory, right? And Stalin agreed. And that's how they got nukes, right? Then they stole the technology from Russia. So that's how they got submarines too, right? So, so like that, that's the pattern of the CCP, right? And that's why this whole like reopening thing with like, uh, I do, I, I generally agreed with the, the Deng Xiaoping, uh, you know, and Nixon and all that stuff. I generally agreed with all those things, right? But we, we sort of like got too far into it, right? Really in the nineties and two thousands where we were super naive about IP protection and what the CCP has a history of doing. And now we're much smarter thanks to really only one person, which is President Trump. Like he changed both parties' view of China, right? Absolutely did. That was one of his greatest victories as his administration. I understand a lot of people maybe watching this don't like him, but that's objectively true. And and both parties would say that, right? So that has changed now, right? Where we now view them uh, from a much more hostile perspective. Like, like, can you imagine like Eric, like 10 years ago, I was talking about like, let's say amazing, successful Chinese social media company that we're talking about banning 
Like that would have never happened like 10 years ago. Now it's like, it's like the hot take. Yeah, we should ban TikTok, right? Like, like, every, you know, senators and states and everyone, it's like the hot thing to do is just a ban, right? Uh, and so much so that, you know, that, you know, like uh, on All In, right? The, the resident Democrat, like Jamal, well, I guess Jason too, right? Has said that, like, yeah, it's going to happen. He's like, they're just going to ban TikTok, right? It's just, it's just like, it is the conclusion. It's not going to be that big of a deal as people think, right? That's saying something coming from as loyal as a Democrat is. And obviously, you know, uh, uh, David is uh, uh, full on board, right? So like, I, I think that we're, we're entering this new phase of regionalization and almost like, I don't know if the word is deglobalization, but maybe like more specified globalization, uh, where we're withdrawing back into like our own territory and our own borders and are working with people that we trust, uh, which, which will mean like, uh, we have to be okay with this as people who use risk-based capital like longer term in inflation. Uh, and because we are onshoring things back and, uh, in the cheapest place in the world for America to produce something is not China, it's Mexico. And, and so that whole like re onshoring thing is, I, I think it's going to be China plus strategies, but like GPUs, I, I can see the same thing happening. I can see, uh, manufacturing moving, uh, for that, for those chips to, to the West. I can see, uh, like more and more, like uh, high chip production. Uh, as you saw with the, um, I forget the name of Biden's bill, but the, the Biden bill to like re onshore chip making. Now that's going to increase the price of all these things, right? And, but I think the West has decided, including me in Europe, that that's worth it. Uh, and that's a whole new wave of innovation. I know like Andreessen has a fund devoted, uh, devoted to this. I'm sure some other people are, are as well, but that's a whole new wave of, uh, companies that need to be made and supply chains that need to be rebuilt. Uh, and maybe that's the new alternative second economy, right? Is this just like re-onshored version of what previously was offshored? Uh, but it, it is, it is, it is happening. Uh, and, and, and you, you can talk to people who make not software things, but real things, uh, like physical things. And every one of those companies will tell you that that's what they're doing, that the lockdowns triggered it. And, and that the whole break in supply chain triggered that. To where they were interested now in other supply chains, they develop those new supply chain relationships. Now they see that like, oh wait, this other country that we relied on basically stabbed us in the back, right? Kind of screwed over our company for a year or more. So that's a risk now. I have to factor into my lean supply chain, and they're just going to go to places where they know it's not going to happen. So they, they're not going to go. They're the pricing. You know, they're going to factor in that risk calculation. Uh, and, and you know, it could be like Malaysia, the Philippines, like. Other places are more allied to us, um, but but yeah, like I, I I see Mexico as this new rebirth of reonshoring uh, and and other like low cost manufacturing regions in America, including Colorado and Texas uh, and the Plain States as well, uh, to re bring this back locally. And I hope that will include like you know GPU production and like you know Nvidia does US based only you know chips and stuff like that. That's a that's a helpful um, overview. What were we talking about? Trump, I'm curious if you could briefly compare Biden and, and, and Trump in terms of what are the biggest uh, overlap and biggest differences substantively uh, policy-wise. In many ways, it seems that Biden is sort of a continuation of Trump and even harder or harsher or, or sort of more Trump than, than Trump on maybe some of the foreign policy stuff or China stuff in particular, but, but in other ways, it, it's a bit different. Why don't you unpack that? Well, one, I mean, I guess we don't really know who's making decisions. I mean, certainly not Biden, like, you know. We've all seen how he walks. Like that person is not making decisions. And, you know, he's, a, he's essentially as, as that one guy, that comedian says he's a Roomba. 
right? So he's just he's just cleaning the grass as he walk outside, right? So somebody is doing this, right? But 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 also like there are um, the neocons have to go somewhere, right? They're certainly not Republicans now, so they're going back to the Democrat Party, and and I think that's where a lot of this hawkishness still is continuing. Uh, but also, it's like an easy scapegoat. Go to my starting theory, like it's easy. So far away, you know, they look different, they sound different, like you know, easy scapegoat theory, right? And and I think that that is is often the desire when a country is internally stressed, and we are. We have you know high inflation, high interest rates, unsure whenever we're going to go to a recession. Everyone's been taking a recession for the last two years. Hasn't happened, so like, which is kind of interesting, um, and which makes me think that like maybe Powell was smarter than everybody thought. I mean, we'll see him again next six months, but it's also kind of impressive, right? That like maybe he does soft this. If he does, there will be like a literally whatever he did will be named the Powell method, right? Um, if he doesn't, then you know he, he goes the way of of the two thousand eight two thousand nine crisis, right? I, I think that there's a like, there's things that are consensus that both parties will accept. Because it's sort of viewed as a non, uh, you can't win elections over. So that's generally what I view, like when policies become bipartisan, like no one is going to vote against you or for you for that issue. And, and so like they give ground on that because they just don't really care. Uh, and they can find some easy path to like, you know, find some compromise. So like China is not like, you know, there are certain hawks that will vote for China and those generally will be Republicans, but that's not going to win an election. Right. I, uh, and, and so especially for, if we're looking at this next next you know cycle, charisma matters the most, right? And not midterms doesn't matter the most. Like it doesn't matter because people generally vote for the number the top ticket and it flows down. So as next upcoming election, I think it will be a lot more about basically like how what do we want to be as a country? And so like you know Biden, if he runs, which I'm skeptical that he does. Uh, I mean, I just don't know how you, I just don't know how you you do this now, right? It, like it, it's it's to the point of like. You know, I, you know, we keep referencing all in, but you know, it's the number one podcast for like our, our sector, our industry. But you know, even if you're losing the support of, you know, Jason and Jamal, like that's saying something, right? That they're, they look at him and they don't, it doesn't breed confidence, right? Um, and so I, I think that they shift to, to have somebody else come in that, that's more younger, more vibrant, that resonates with some of their identity categories they used to get a lot of people to vote. Um, but the, but the, the overlap of the parties thing is generally focused on things that just generally wouldn't win an election on, uh, and doesn't hurt the other person. Uh, they generally, you know, create lines on things that they think they win over and create wedge issues. Um, and China, the good things to, thanks to the Trump administration just became like the thing that everybody just kind of agreed to. And, you know, there's differences here and there, but like, you know, remember I ever freaked out about the Trump tariffs and all this crap. Like we just sort of accept it now. Right. And, and that's because I think one post lockdowns. Uh, that changed also people's view of China because just how dishonest they were, and and they were not um, you know being forthright with what was going on. Uh, the second is the it's not the cheapest place to make anything anymore. There are a ton of other countries that's cheaper that are much more friendly, uh, even communist ones like like Vietnam uh, are are significantly more associated with like these uh, more favorable patterns to our country. So much so, I think Vietnam will actually become a democratic country in a couple of decades. Uh, so yeah, I think that's actually created this fissure, uh, where there's, uh, a, a consensus built because, uh, there will be a, uh, other issues that they can pick as, as wedge issues. And China is just a, a super easy scapegoat. And they're actually like, no, a scapegoat generally doesn't justify its behavior, but will, uh, in this case, like they, you know, they actually are our greatest adversary. 
So yeah, thanks, Eric, for having me. Uh, and I appreciate it. Uh, it was a good conversation. And yeah, if you want to follow me, follow me on Twitter, uh, A-G-I-N-T, or check out my company, Hydrohost, if you are interested in good GPUs at wholesale prices. So thanks, Eric. Upstream with Eric Tornberg is a show from Turpentine, the podcast network behind Moment of Zen and Cognitive Revolution. If you like the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together 